I think it's very important for entrepreneurs to always think about how can you be the first to do something revolutionary? How can you be have that first mover advantage? Welcome to the Startup Palette Show. When you think of startups, you think of Silicon Valley. We're going to venture beyond the valley and paint a picture of the startup ecosystem featuring diverse founders, investors, and operators. We'll hear about their origin stories that shape them, the highlights, the lowlights, the best practice, and their visions for the future. Join me as we get a front seat to witness the phenomenal role of these pathbreakers. I'm your host, Preeti Mohan. Let's get started. Welcome to the Startup Palette Show, Esther. I'm so excited to have you here today. Um, Esther is the co-founder of Agilate. It's been known or been spoken about as the world's first intelligent eyes. It's extended reality, artificial intelligence and computer vision to help frontline workers and to help transform and save lives. Welcome, Esther. I'm so, so glad to have you here. Let's start with how are you feeling? And I mean, how are you really feeling today? Unfiltered, unmarked? Uh, well, I'm actually feeling quite great today. There's a couple of things that I've got done. I'm a very target and goal-orientated person. So I feel great when I get my <laughs> task list ticked off, which is good. And that's always a great day in the life of an entrepreneur, right? When you've got that task list and you see it shrink down. Yes, definitely. Um. What was childhood like for Esther? What was life in Singapore? Like? Oh, actually, it's uh, it's actually pretty tough. So I came from a family of eight. So my parents had six children and I'm the fourth child, of which uh, the very forgotten one. I was so forgotten that my parents literally forgot to send me to school. So I missed two years of preschool and I remembered being uh, ostracized in school by the teachers because of that because they must they were saying you know that this kid has never been to preschool so she must be quite dumb um the neighbors okay. were like questioning them and said that how come we never see your fourth daughter going to school and then they realized that oh yeah we forgot we totally forgot <laughs> at least it was preschool but, but singapore is a very competitive place so they start streaming the kids at a very young age you know whether you're a gifted child or whether you're a dumb child they sort of try and put you in a box at a very young age, which is, you know, that, that's the competitiveness of the society, uh, which is quite bad in a sense because and also the fact that I've always been quite an independent child and I'm always the one quietly doing work in the background and helping my parents, you know, tidy up the house and do everything for them. So they sort of take it for granted, I suppose. <laughs> and, and having six children, I think maybe it's a little bit hard to uh, cope as well. But um, having that childhood... Um, it's, it's actually very tough in many ways. I actually went been through quite a lot of uh, pretty traumatic experiences that most children would not have experienced. Um, so my dad had a successful construction business um, back then, you know, building five, five-star hotels, you know, large commercial buildings and luxury homes um, until the Singapore financial crisis. So when the financial crisis hit, it uh, obviously affected my father's business a lot. It affected him mentally and physically. Um, and he literally went into very deep depression, uh, alcoholism uh, that resulted in domestic violence. So then what happened is that uh, my mom and my older siblings moved out because they couldn't stand it anymore. Um, and leaving me at that time, probably 11 or 12 years old, to look after my dad and my two younger oh, wow. siblings. 
So I basically got my first job at 12 years old to feed the family. Uh, at that time, I was very fortunate because I was very tall by Singapore standards. You know, at 12 years old, and because I was very mature, I mean, imagine that, you know, at a young age, you've been doing everything, you've been running the household for your mom and dad, basically. Um, and uh, so nobody actually even suspected, you know. So my employers never checked my ID and never checked, you know, never realized that um, I was underage. But uh, I remember my first job was in sales and my pay was made mostly based on sales performance. So you can imagine that it really drove me to be one of the top sales. Um, and by 16, I was already in, uh, in big companies selling luxury brands like Kelvin Klein, uh, SDK Tanks um, in, the, in Orchard Road uh, while studying full-time at the Gifted Girls School. Um, and that's, all, that's also where I became the youngest swim captain and the president of the Creative Writing Club. So at 17, I was very fortunate to get a Monash Asia-Pacific scholarship to go to Melbourne to study, which really changed my life. And that's why I'm also very passionate about education and giving back in that sector. So growing up, I would say I, I never had any toys, you know, I have no Barbie dolls, no, no extra, you know, uh, tuition or anything else. Um, and it was really about work. Like I was working at a very young age. So everything was almost like self-taught. Like I even taught myself how to swim. And I would starve and not eat my lunch so that I could wow. secretly pay for all my entrance fee to the swimming pool uh, and the bus fares and everything else. Um, so it was really like the surviving of the fittest back in those days for me. The resilience that you've shown from such a young age. Do you ever feel like you've missed out on a childhood? Is that something that plays on your mind at all? Well, it's definitely something I don't want my child, my children to grow up with. So... Um, being my parents were quite uh, workaholics and, and subsequently alcohol, which, which is bad, um, makes it really difficult, I think, for a, a child to, to be able to be the best that they could be if they have tough situations. But it also, like you said, it also helped me to develop this re resilience um, and be able to always see the positive of the negative. Even though I would say that I don't have, you know, normal childhood like kids, you know, where they will be going out to play or having time with their friends, where else I will be working all the time after school and, you know, off to work. Um, and then coming back, I had to do all the housework, I had to cook for the family because my dad doesn't know how to cook or do any housework. So so basically, I was like a mom to two younger kids, <laughs> two younger siblings at a very young age. So I suppose you don't live life with regrets. You know, you don't live life trying to compare yourself with other people. You know, there's always a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, because it actually built a lot of strength of character for, for me at a young age, which really you need that kind of grit in the startup world where you face a lot more no's than yes, right? <laughs> um, and, and you will face a lot of difficulties in entrepreneurship. It's not uh, what people think is so glamorous. You know, they watch the, the startup show, you know, the K-drama series and thought, oh, it's so easy to, to you know, just go and pitch on staging. Uh, get money rolling into the door. It's not as easy as that. It's definitely not as easy as that. Um, would you say, just by virtue of the situations you were in, would you say that has contributed to you being as entrepreneurial as you are now? Yes, I think definitely, because there's actually also a saying, you know, there's a saying, a Chinese proverb that says that only in the most chaotic times will heroes and heroines emerge, right? Because it's only in very tough times that the tough gets going. Um, and it really sort of, bring you up to a whole new level because you had, like I was telling you, it's the survival of the fitness. You either survive or you die. You know, 
right? Correct. You're, you're hungry for just anything better than the situation that you're in, right? And so you, you fight harder to find ways to improve that situation. So I think what you said before really resonated about finding light in that darkness um, and looking at things as mm -hmm. opportunities. I think that's that's really important. And that's something that doesn't come unless you've actually been through those situations. Yeah. Um, what I really love about all of this is you've been such a high achiever. You've been self-taught, um, swimming captain. I also uh, read somewhere you were a school prefect um, and then a topper at university. And then at university, I heard that you actually negotiated that they consider your employment towards your degree so you can do three in four. That is incredible. Like for someone to think about that while they're going through university and actually for the university to make a change after mm. phenomenal. That well, that's very interesting. I mean, for me, because for me, I always read the word impossible as I am possible. So and so because I've, I've went through a lot of hardships and a lot of suffering and difficulties and I still emerge fine, right? So so nothing is actually too hard for, like, for me in my mentality, like in my mindset. There's always ways to overcome, you know, the challenges or the barriers. So um, at that time in university, I remember, I mean, I, I've got, I'm very fortunate, I do get jobs offers a lot. So even before I graduated, I was, well, my first job was actually working part-time for Thomson Reuters. And uh, I was part of the Armstrong database team. So that's the global team that actually built the world's largest uh, financial database in the world, which is still very much used by the stock exchanges and the stockbrokers now. Um, back in those days, we just called ourselves Armstrong Database Group. Nowadays, the catchphrase is predictive analytics. So that was basically what we did, um, uh, which is yeah. a service that is obviously in high demand. Then my second job I've actually got, so I was offered, you know, a full-time employment. In fact, I was paid much higher than most graduates, actually, um, and headhunted way before I graduated. So I was saying that, man, since I've got this opportunity, why can't I just, you know, do how the engineering students, they have an internship where they can count towards their degree. And I just went to negotiate with the head of department. <laughs> told them that that was the first time they offered a double degree in commerce and technology. So it was the first time we were the first batch of students and they were like, man, I'm already squeezing something like two degrees in four years and you want to do it in three and a half. I said, yes, I already got a job. So, so it's like, <laughs> yes, I can do it. I've I really got it. offered an appointment. They pay me for full pay. They're not going to say, oh, internship, you had to work for six months for free. They will say, I'm prepared to pay your full graduate pay. In fact, I actually got a lot of bonuses as well. So I was paid really, really well. So, um... And because of that, I just went to talk to the head of department. Obviously, the head of department has to justify it to, you know, the faculty. <laughs> and um, it did cause a big change because ever since, whoever the, who can actually secure themselves a full-time job before they graduate could get, like, I think it was 36 credits, you know, for half a year of work, which I think is really bringing about change. And I suppose because, um, you know, I think my upbringing caused me to always think out of the box. And, you know, what's the most efficient, effective way? Obviously, I wanted to to get into the workforce as soon as possible, um, given that, you know, I've got two younger siblings that I need to support as well. And I was work, working all the time when I was studying. So I was doing multiple jobs, uh, even in university. And despite the scholarship, I was still, um, you know, trying to, to earn as much as I can, basically. So, so that was one of the things that I did, which would be considered a first. 
And I think it's very important for entrepreneurs to always think about how can you be the first to do something revolutionary? How can you be have that first mover advantage? And um, thinking outside of the box, I think there's so much information. There's so many things online mm-hmm. that we see. And it's hard to not go with society and think against the grain rather than with, with the grain or think outside of the box. There are, there are so many terms to describe it. But like... I think in any situation, it, it's beneficial and particularly in entrepreneurship. Before we get to your entrepreneurial journey, like talk to us about your career and all the different hats you've worn. Like you've had such an illustrious career. You're clearly someone who's got ambitions, but has the knowledge and hard work to back those ambitions. So what has your career been like and what have been the highlights? So that for, that first full-time high-paying job was with Arthur Anderson at that time, which was in technology consulting. And that was uh, subsequently then became Accenture. So that that one was also very interesting because it was a lot of thinking out of the box. Uh, most of my clients were governments, financial, because I work for Thomson Reuters. So it was uh, like all the financial houses, all the stock exchanges, all the governments, all the banks. And at that time, uh, it was the Y2K problem. It was like a ban her thing, right? It was like, man, all the governments in the world and all the clients and big banks were throwing money at, at us, right? To say, man, you guys got to solve this problem. And I remember at that time, I was the only female engineer, actually. So I was not just the first who was like paid a full pay graduate job, but I was also the only female that they recruited in a very male-dominated IT consulting industry. Um and I remember at that time, we had this very big meeting and we've got, because it's also global, so with Accenture, we were talking to our colleagues in, uh, in London and in Hong Kong as well. One of our biggest um, clients was the Standard Chartered Bank. And then we were discussing, okay, how do we solve this Y2K problem? Because what is going to happen? Nobody knew what was going to happen. It was a lot of us. Everybody was running to the bank we drew cash out, you know, just because they were like, what happened to my money? If all of a sudden all the zeros turned haywire and kabuki, right? So... So at that time, I remember, uh, and the first mobile phone just came out. So it was, uh, and only my managing partner had it. It was very expensive. It was a Nokia one, you know, the size of a brick. It was like, you know, what those old brick water bottles. The Nokia brick. Very big one. Um, People beyond the millennial generation <laughs> watching this, you need right. to go review and see what Y2K is and Nokia yes, they, they, they don't know how big it is, but it was ridiculous. But anyway, with the antenna, you know, sticking up. So at that time, um, I remember in the meeting and being the only female engineer there, you you do get quite a lot of attention. <laughs> and I came up with the idea of, you know, why do we move everything to a brand new technology, a different infrastructure? Because all our NT and Unix, that's why most of the bank, they were all running on mainframes, right? IBMs and uh, NT servers and all these are very antiquated technology. So I literally picked up the phone that my boss put on the table and said, why don't we just move everything into this? This portable mobile tech infrastructure, and we'll make we do e banking. We are using the phone, so everybody thought it was quite ridiculous at that time. So a lot of them were this so is a young female engineer, so we had to forgive her. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. But it was very strange that my managing partner he has this huge faith in me. Like he he was such a big supporter, he was such a good mentor to me as well. He had huge faith in me, and he actually thought that this is a brilliant idea. Let's do it, even though all the technical guys will say, it's okay, it's not possible. We just can't, you know, do it in, in a short time frame. We don't even know how to code in Android, right? So, so everybody was like, you know, how do we make this, this uh, wireless transfers using, you know, 
exposed, right? So I was like, oh, it was really bizarre going to them. They thought my idea was pretty bizarre. But my, my managing partner thought it was brilliant. <laughs> he literally sent me they learn wireless communication you know how do we transmit data packages and without getting all these um what adversaries trying to tap into our communication so i have to learn zeros and ones yeah. to figure out how do we actually do this thing right um and the rest just became history. Like just a, an idea that, you know, just literally picking out the phone and saying, let's move everything to this one. And because I actually saw the mobile technology will be the next big wave. It's the next big thing that everybody will jump on. You know, even though at that time I couldn't afford one and only my managing partner had one. I knew that this is going to be the thing that is going to transform our next generation, which which my prediction came true, right? Because now nobody could live without a phone. <laughs> you know, you use the phone for the alarm, you use the phone for taking photos, you use the phone for your calendar, you use it for everything and your e-banking and everything else is in your phone. So even your GPS and everything, like, we can't survive without a phone anymore. Um, so, so that was a very interesting times because in those moments in Accenture, we really have to solve very real life big problems that are worth multi-billion dollars. And we often have to challenge the status quo. We often have to think really bizarre ideas that people will actually, there's so many naysayers, you know, uh, who will say that it won't work. But you just have to stick to it and make it work. I suppose that's, you know, that's my, my mentality, right? Nothing is impossible. Stick to it and make it work. Nothing is impossible. But this, this is what I love, right? Like for a visionary idea to be accepted and adopted, it just takes sometimes one person to say yes, and that one person is an influential someone. And if that happens, things transform. And obviously it takes a visionary like yourself to identify. I tend to think out of the box a lot. So when people can't see, I can actually see what's going to happen in the next 10 years time. It's, um, it's a, a sort of intuition. You can, it, it just comes quite naturally to me. So, and then after that, I uh, worked for big companies. I, I'm very fortunate because I, I worked in, you know, Accenture. I have very good reputation there. I get headhunted all the time. I remember almost every week I get headhunters calling me, hey, they're offering you more money. Do you want to go? <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And I get offered uh, an expatriate opportunity. So I went to work for CJ Group, which is quite large and was traveling all around the world. Um, in accounting and technology as the accounting and technology manager. And then after that, when I migrated to Australia, I got a role initially as a group internal audit manager for City Pacific, um, which is a large conglomerate listed in Hong Kong. It's actually state-owned uh, by the Chinese government. And then I got promoted to be the deputy commercial director at one of the subsidiaries, which is the iron ore, um, uh, the City Pacific Mining in, in uh, Magnetite Iron Ore, which is also one of the largest projects in the world. Um, and so I very quickly became the go-to problem solver. Like if everything is, is everything is too complex or too challenging, they say, okay, give it to Esther, she'll figure it out. Just pass it to her. So that became like my what a, what a great reputation to have. I mean, like, tell me about this, right? If even these days this conversation is going on about gender and um, about not enough women being in technology or STEM, you were in technology when it really mattered. Y2K was such a huge deal in the history of technology. How was your treatment as a... First thing, if you are attractive, young, female, you do get a lot of attention, as I said. Uh, but also some unwanted attention sometimes, which you need to be able to put your feet yes. on the ground and 
and stop whether it's bullying or sexist comments or discrimination. So in terms of discrimination, I mean, I worked in the mining sector as well. So for some bizarre reason, I'm always stuck with a lot of men, like all the industries I work with are full of men. Uh, and even in the medical space, the most of the doctors are also men. Um, but you need to know when to put your foot down and when to assert yourself so that you're not being taken advantage of. And I think that's my advice to a lot of um, young, aspiring female entrepreneurs as well. Because sometimes you might feel um, that you you have a very huge barrier to overcome. You know, and I mean, scientifically, it's proven so many research has gone through the fact, you know, they, they, they give more money to male, uh, white, you know, typical uh, kind of um, men in skinny jeans, right? <laughs> and not so much to the women at all. In fact, I think the, the funding that women get globally is very miserable, which there are, I do know there are some uh, change makers who wants to try and make a difference to try and support more female, mostly also run by female VCs. Um, but there's a lot of work to be done. It's not just the VCs that you have to be in this. It's, it's the whole community. The whole community of, of not just gender. You know, there's a lot of diversity that people have to embrace. For example, culture. Um, different ethnicity, um, different languages, and even different religious beliefs. You know, I think people have to learn to be more uh, accepting of differences and be able to value these differences rather than discriminate. Absolutely. And a lot of it is unconscious bias, right? Which is really problematic because they're not even realizing it exists and they're discounting people mm-hmm. on superficial even even like visually how people look or how they sound. Um, moving to Australia from Singapore. Where you quite a lot, to- actually. Like in Asia, we are not so... I think women are quite a value part of the workforce. So like even when I was working in mm-hmm. Hong Kong, we had a lot of the chief justices, the uh, head of the police force, and all these are actually led by females. And nobody had a, any question or any like qualms about it where else in australia you find that people second guess you so when i was in the mining sector i also became the first female to be promoted ground out based on meritocracy alone so um, it's not like trying to pull strings there's no nepotism you find a lot of nepotism in the mining industry it's not a big deal you know it's not that kind of old boys club but um but when you truly perform and you see that the value you bring to the organization is tremendous, people want to promote you. So I also broke that glass ceiling, became the first female to be promoted from ground out uh, based on performance alone. Um, and also that changed the whole culture. So City actually is very good. They're very pro-female. And after they promoted the second female, the third female, and, and so on into their more senior management roles, whereas before that they were all like, Everybody on the was a man, right? So, so I think the Asians are actually more open to having female leadership. Uh, it was quite challenging because initially a lot of my world colleagues couldn't accept it. They were so used to the male mm-hmm. white person, you know, and not an Asian female migrant was a mom of you know kids, right? So they were like, oh, you didn't quite fit into that that square hole they were expecting you to be. So. It's not what they've seen right. or so, experienced so you want before. People who are trying to challenge your leadership, and I remember being in the mining.
uh, we were we were early, so we were, you know people were just chit chatting around, and it was very interesting. So I sat down. I was getting ready for the meeting, you know, looking through and getting stuffed in while they were just chit chatting, you know, talking about the footy or their barbecue or whatever over the weekend, right? And nobody actually took an initiative to talk to me. It was very interesting. All the men were talking about all the men's stuff, right? All their AFL and whoever won or lost, you know, that kind of thing. And when the meeting, the moment the meeting started, my manager said, um, this is my boss, Esther, and she's going to be the one who they decide whether she's going to award you the $100 million contract or not. And all of the sudden, you know, after the meeting, every single supplier, can, oh, can we have lunch with you and can we blah, blah, blah. He was like, man, go away, man. I'm not interested. You can't bribe me anyway. So, so but you see that difference? Like they were thinking, they were all trying to rally or curry favor of my managers below me because they were male. And they totally ignore a female sitting at the head of the table. Like they would, they even treat you, they, they even you treat you like you were transparent. They didn't see you until my manager said, hey, by the way, this is my boss. She's the one who signed all the multi-million dollar contracts. And you, you suddenly see all these people trying to call you every single day, email you, spam you, stalk you on LinkedIn and do every other thing to try and get your attention. It's like, you know, it's not going to work. But but um, you see the very stark differences. I probably won't get that in Singapore. Like, you know, people don't treat yeah. you as if you're invisible <laughs> in the meetings. And you probably have a quite an equal male and female sitting around the meeting room. Whereas this one's like, I was the only female and nobody bothered to even talk to you. They probably think that, and this must be the PA writing our notes. <laughs> Oh my God. Oh my God. Let's not even go there. This thing around invisibility. I mean, it's, I don't think unless you've experienced it, people can't understand it, but you literally feel like you're surrounded by people and no one sees you. Um, it's quite isolating. Did you do anything within your organization to fit in or like, did you learn about AFL? No, I don't about care. Like, to be honest, I'm just me, no, right? And, I, and for me, it's like, Performance speaks more than anything else. Like for me, action is louder than words. Like I, I don't, I, I don't like to waste time. I think it's very time wasting with all these small talk and stuff like that because I've got plenty of work to do, right? So you know, I'm kind of, I've got so many things on my task list. I just want to get it done and over with and do them to the best of my ability. So I wasn't like trying to fit into that. Like I think you just have to be yourself, be authentic. I mean, the the moment they know who you are, they actually respect. So I've got a lot of respect in the mining sector. Amazing, amazing. You demanded that respect based on your, but based on the work that you delivered. Thank you. I just love all the glass ceilings you've shattered and how you've actually made it easier for generations to come beyond. And I think the mining sector is still like in in a lot of companies and um, a lot of businesses. It's very behind still. There's a lot to be done. I wish you could work <laughs> in all of them. <laughs> Yeah, it's not easy though because it's always like you always face a lot of challenges along the way um, and, and it's, it's very real like most people don't realize but it was ridiculous you know despite the fact that I have more qualifications than on any of the males in in the company not just my subordinates my subordinates were actually paid more than me just because they were male did you ever negotiate well, your definitely actually, salary? All my bosses, they even went all the way, you know, to, to the parent entity, like into Hong Kong and to China and said that, man, we have to, we have to retain Esther, we need to pay her more and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, and they did, they, they, they did many ways, but then they always, you know, you always have politics and HR will say that, no, 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 she's already paid more than the average female in the mining industry. It's like, yeah, because all the average female were paid like 30 to 50% lower than the male. What are you talking about, right? And, and they didn't base it. It was solely based on gender. 
you know, and I remember even the interview was actually quite discriminatory. Actually, they, the, one of the questions they asked, which was actually illegal, and I literally said that to the face to my future boss. I said, it's illegal to ask that question of Australia. So basically, I mean, he didn't know because he, he, he was from Hong Kong. Um, and he was asking, oh, are you married and do you have children? Because uh, the Asian mentality is that, oh, if you're married and children, you can't be a career woman. You'll be doing all the school rides or mm-hmm. chores, sick, and you'll be on sick leave and you'll be, you know, taking a lot of leave all the time, right? And um, I literally told him off. <laughs> but my boss actually loved oh, to tell him off. <laughs> and he actually listened to me, so that's good. <laughs> I told him, I said, no, it's illegal to ask this question. And it doesn't matter whether I have children or not, or whether I'm married or not. As long as I can perform what you care, right? <laughs> The, the fact that he listened is probably why you took that job, right? If your boss didn't take on that feedback or like, you know, acknowledge that it was a mistake. that's mm-hmm. a- But also because, I mean, remember he, he was from Hong Kong. So the Hong Kong males are very open to females and getting challenged by females. Mm-hmm. It might be a different one, you know, if, if he's an Aussie white guy, you know, thinking that well, this, this girl is so insolent to talk to me like that. <laughs> oh. Moving forward, what led you from um, full-time work to entrepreneurship? Well, it's actually very interesting. So, well, throughout the time when I was in the mining sector, I got I built myself quite a good reputation. So I actually got to also sit on several boards. Uh, and mostly I would choose to serve in the education sector. So I had, you know, I was sitting on the boards for CPA Australia, for um, Curtin University, Edith Cowan University, and I even had the ministerial appointment to reform the whole of TAFE in WA. Times during the worst times when the mining and oil and gas were like skydiving to rock bottom, right? So we had a lot of engineers who now have no jobs, right? So then how do we retrain them for a skill and get them into the workforce earlier than later? So um, at that time, I thought, and it was very interesting. So I I made quite a lot of money in, in the, in, so I started All Asia Resources. I won several awards invested my money in other tech startups so I invested quite a lot <laughs> and uh, venture capital as well um, and then after that you know life just throws curveballs along your way you know when you thought that oh man I'm having such a good life you know I'm supporting all these other startups and 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 helping others uh, and then COVID changed everything so that's 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 the story of how Agilia started and this is the story you told me at Sunrise um it, it's a very moving story and I think Agiliate comes from a place, a very real place of need um, and it's need that's going to transform the world. Um, are you okay to share this story yes. with us? So um, Agiliate, which actually means empower to make smarter, faster and safer, came out of I think the worst adversities I've ever been through, right? I've been through quite a lot, but it was very bad. So during COVID, uh, my son came home with a cough and a sore throat and nobody in the wildest, and this is the healthiest of my three sons. He's the one who never felt sick his whole life. A cough and a sore throat from school just before the COVID lockdown made him lose his vision um, due to also the, the misdiagnosis and delays during that lockdown period. So it was very unfortunate that of it was only the fourth professor um, who told us that the first doctor should have just sent my son to emergency for a 20-minute steroid infusion that will save him from a lifetime of blindness. You know, he's as gifted, as, as bright and gifted as my eldest son who's doing medical school, but he now suffers a permanent disability that deny him from most jobs. 
So, however, his disability never never actually stopped him from inspiring other people and helping other people. And that's how, you know, when I saw the strength and resilience in him, I thought, man, we have to do something to stop this problem. We have to stop all these premature deaths and disabilities happening to other people, you know, that, that uh, uh, influences their lives a lot. So that's how, you know, I decided to put in and think out of the box, as usual, how can I actually solve this problem of the time delay the expertise gap, and at that time we had a distance or a travel a problem, you know, despite the fact that I was getting all the reports from the Lion's Eye and sending to Harvard, like to the, some of the top ophthalmologists, they couldn't do anything about it, just reading those reports because we couldn't travel. Obviously, US COVID was even worse, and I had doctor friends who died on the job, and I've got even more um, um, doctor friends and nurses who, who left the workforce as a result. So I wanted to solve the problem using technology because uh, we know that you know WHO predicted way before COVID happened that uh, we will have a shortfall of 18 million frontline healthcare workers by 2030. That's only less than seven years from now, and that was pre-COVID. Post-COVID is even worse. Nobody wants to be a doctor or nurse now <laughs> after that. All, all these things, um, and and that's how I sort of thought really deep and hard about this problem of how can I use technology to solve this distance, this expertise gap, and this um, limitation of like physical limitation. So there's obviously geography or, you know, physical um, kind of limitation that we were experiencing. So that made me decide to put in three very deep technologies into one very seamless and literally plug and play solution, I call it, uh, into a pair of lightweight smart glasses. So literally, you know, I combined extended reality, artificial intelligence, and computer vision, which is Because of the skill shortages, you know, it was the fourth doctor. Can you imagine? She's a professor. All the other specialists had no idea what happened mm. to my son. And then they just keep referring, okay, I don't know. I'm going to refer you to the most more senior guy. And you, you wait six to 12 months to see the more senior guy, right? So by the time you miss that golden yeah. opportunity to save that life or save his eye, um, which which is, you know, why we came up with X-ray vision. Um, and we we're very fortunate that uh, despite being a startup, we managed to win a couple of state, national and global awards. Uh, we got a lot of media attention, certainly like at the global level. Um, that also attracted a lot of uh, international governments uh, talking to us about our technology. Um, and I got the privilege of testing your technology. It's phenomenal. Um, so let me try to describe it from what I experienced. You basically put it on and then it has um, flow charts and information that you can navigate through the glasses to help you when you're in those frontline crucial situations as well. And like, especially a time like COVID, for example, where there's so much going on, so many lives being disrupted, the world has turned mm -hmm. upside yeah. down. So we basically design it as a I platform. So now we've upgraded, you know, because we keep continuous improvement is, is the, the theme of of, of course, of course. Correct. So, so for our module one, we basically enables a frontline work, like a frontline worker, let's say a community nurse out in the bush on her own, which we have a lot in WA. And often they are very young, so they are inexperienced as well. But they often get the worst cases because a lot of 
uh, Aboriginal people, they don't like Western medicine. And by the time they really rock up in front of a nurse, it's sometimes beyond repair and very bad infections and very bad cases that she may not be skilled enough to treat. So, so that module one, uh, remote collaboration, allows that frontliner to connect to uh, off-site specialist, so somebody who's more senior and highly skilled, who can see through exactly like as if he is actually on in that room with with the frontliner. So, uh, we call it seeing in first perspective. So it's it's as if like the the specialist now become the ears and the eyes of the frontliner, and the frontliner becomes the hands and the feet of the expert. You know, because we have a lot of very skilled doctors, but because of family reasons or whatnot, they often work in the metro hospitals and they don't go into the bush. But it's really their skills are very needed in the bush, right? So we sort of reverse engineer their role. Okay, we'll send the young and the gung-ho people out in the bush because these are the more adventurous ones and who can, you know, take the suffering of the 40, 50 degrees heat. Whereas the, the expert can remotely guide them uh, through, through that. And we've got some really revolutionary um, technology that we patented whereby, you know, even the hands, they're augmented reality hands without requiring any special equipment from the specialist side. So the specialist just need a unique URL code to log in from anywhere in the world. And his hands can actually touch the wound that he could see on the screen and his hands comes out through the smart glasses on the patient wound itself. So imagine if I'm doing a C-section and this is real life cases. A lot of babies and women have died or suffered um, because when they are in the bush, the nearest they could go to is to emergency, but they didn't realize that emergency doctors are not gynecologists. So they did to do a can draw on the patient's tummy itself and say that okay John you see this line just cut along this line just follow the line okay so it's just because, okay I'm back to kindy now I could just follow whatever the specialist tell me to do and reduce the risk to the patient and reduce the risk to the doctor you know reduce all these professional liability things that they have to face if something goes wrong so it's really it's really quite revolutionary for like the module one where they have a human expert. Module two, we also did it like in when there was there's no human assistance or um, internet available because obviously the first one requires the internet. Then they are able to use what we call AI assistance. So we inbuilt the AI assistance as a fallback mechanism such that in the event if you know let's say it's really bad and you can't get any human online, um, or in some of the war torn zones your telecommunications are cut off then you are able to still retrieve what we call knowledge on demand. So basically our service, like we deliver knowledge on demand. Whatever you don't know, tell us what you don't know. We, we push out. That's how you saw the checklist. You saw the, what we call algorithms that doctors use. You know, it's almost like a decision tree of what to do in what circumstances. Um, standard operating procedures. We can deliver any digital information to your peripheral vision without blocking the view of the patient. So while we are working on it, you can still, every time I'm not sure, look up and you see our Agilite logo and it would actually tell, like give you all the men, uh, menu applications that you could go for. So one of them will be AI assistance and you could retrieve all this information to step you through some of the complex procedures that you, you are not sure or you've never done before. That's phenomenal, especially living in a world where even for pe people living within city areas, getting to a specialist or getting that specialist yes. support is hard. You're enabling that specialist help 
anywhere across the most remote areas and even in areas that are cut off by mm-hmm. technology. Uh, and it's time saved. You know what I mean? What? You save a lot of time and a lot of trouble. And, and those are crucial. That's time for the patient, right? It's very crucial in terms of impacting the patient's lives. So I, I think that has a very direct mm. impact. How are you measuring your impact um, with what you do? Because, I, I mean, I think on one side there's profits and beyond the profits, I think impact is probably even more important. Yeah. So we are a purpose-driven company. We call it a profit with purpose. Um, so we definitely measure quite a lot of metrics <laughs> so given so we obviously we've got the measurable ones the objective ones you know like your your core dropout rates you know your transmission quality and that kind of thing that our technology actually measures to see our performance and what we call system performance but we also um, gather both clinician and patient qualitative feedback because it's very important to get human feedback um, on top of all these hard figures to see how you could improve your technology or how you could um, come up with new modules, right, which solve other problems. So in terms of impact, we definitely look at the ESG side as well. So one of the things we actually measure is carbon footprint. You know, how much of the carbon footprint can we save by not having the doctor fly over now to solve a case or um, the patient having to trans like to take very long and expensive journey into the metro hospitals. You know, it actually costs a lot for the country people to come into um, the, the metro hospitals for a day surgery, for instance. So we also measure that carbon footprint. We measure the impact that we have on the um, patient's lives, you know, the, the preventable hospitalizations. And sometimes you'll be surprised. It's not just the physical health that we are really trying to heal. Among the Aboriginal people, a lot of the healing has to come from deep within. You know, it's because their spirit has been so mm. broken with all the trauma, you know, with all the stolen generations, all the discrimination trauma. they face for so many generations. Um, you know, we've been working with the Aboriginal communities. So one of the things that we want to do also with our virtual healthcare is uh, hopefully, so we are actually taking, uh, we are measuring, we're doing pilots right now uh, with the challenge. So the challenge is a $5 million competition uh, that was up, uh, open. Uh, was open globally. So we were top 10 out of 100 global contestants from the US, from Europe, from Asia, from everywhere, right? So we're now doing this, what we call a proof of concept, proof of value, um, to show the statistics, you know, and the outcomes that come up from utilizing advanced technology for virtual care. So, so one of the things that we want to overcome is, you know how Aboriginal people in their culture, they were taught since young not to look into the eyes of a white person. You know, they always have to look away. You know, they always... Um, it seems that there is this caste society, right? That you different classes of people, so you're not supposed to, you know, look in, into their eyes. But it becomes very challenging, very difficult. If you have an eye injury, which happens a lot because of domestic violence among the communities, the inability for the patient to look at the doctor in the eye means that the doctor can't treat the patient, right? And even my right. elder son is doing medicine. Right. They say it's so hard because we were taught to not to look at them as well. But if I can't look at them, I can't diagnose the problem and I can't treat the problem. So what can I do? You know, I so they often have to rely on what we call describe and prescribe. You describe to me, and I just hear, and then I just imagine in my brain this is what is happening, and then I'll just prescribe you the antibiotics or whatever. Which is not ideal wow. because you could have misdiagnosed. That's the problem. You misdiagnose the case because you can't Correct. see, and for a lot of diseases you need that visual inspection that was the first point of call 
need to look at Absolutely. it like in real in that uh, first perspective. So, so one of the things we wanted to test with our technology is that if we can get a trusted community nurse, and most of the nurses are very trusted because they worked there for twenty years, or an Aboriginal health worker, to be the frontliner wearing the glasses. Mm. You know, I speak their language. I'm of the same gender. You can look at me in the eye. I can look at you in the eye. It's fully transparent. I'm not wearing like some ginormous goggles that is like a HoloLens or some VR that I trip over myself. So I can see you and you can see me. It looks like a normal pair of glasses. And still have a, an off-site specialist guide me because I'm, I'm less experienced. But I have a, a very senior doctor who's guiding me what to do and how to treat this diabetic foot ulcer, for instance, you know, remotely. And for the patient, it doesn't matter anymore whether he's an Indian doctor, Chinese doctor, Caucasian, it doesn't matter, right? As far as I'm concerned, I have somebody trusted, somebody who speaks my language, somebody of my same gender to be able to help me with my medical problem. So that's one of the things that we want to test the concept out and say, that, okay, can we have a remote person that you, you don't really have to know who he is, but be treated by somebody on the front line of whom you trust? I think what's phenomenal about this is this is the impact of thinking about diversity, thinking about impact, thinking about ESG from the very beginning of um, company inception, right? It is baked into what your company delivers and what you want to do in the future. So it's solving much more than what it seems to at surface level. There's a whole iceberg beneath that it's solving, which is brilliant. What is your vision for the future? Where would you like to see Adulate. Our official vision is to transform human vision so that together we can transform our world. And, and we I literally mean that in a very positive way. You know, because by wearing the glasses, you experience it for yourself. It actually transforms the way you see things, right? It brings a whole new perspective. And I think changing the way we see and interpret information uh, from a new 3D perspective and the ability to even have all these external... Um, um, external people who can come in from anywhere in the world to give you extra, um, like an extra pair of eyes or an extra perspective is, is fantastic, you know, because it puts all everybody on the same virtual meeting room. Like it's very immersive because you feel like you are there actually because you could see whatever the frontliner is seeing. You could put your hands in and it appears, right? <laughs> so so it's, it's, it's very like hands-on, even though you're virtual, you could do very hands-on stuff with it. Um, and really, really be able to enhance it with AI assistance to bring better decision making and risk reduction to the businesses. And the other thing is like, as just as how I saw, you know, the mobile technology and how predictive analytics back in those days, right? When, when they don't even have these buzzwords, we are on another wave of technology evolution. You know, so XR and AI and computer vision and machine learning with, you know, coupled with the faster 5G and satellite communications like Starlink, is going to shape the future of work. You know, as more and more people embrace working from home or, you know, having all these remote meetings, having a holographic person appear in front of you in that meeting, uh, your avatar, you know, your virtual avatar, um, it's going to be the next, the next big thing that will transform the world. Like, you know, our, our kids will be growing up with holographic teachers, <laughs> with virtual assistants. <laughs> um, it's, you know, actually it's actually, so extended reality is actually the reality of the future. And that's how I see it. Um, 
technology without solving a problem is just technology, right? It becomes an actual solution and an actual commercially viable business when it solves mm -hmm. a problem. Do you have any stats around your profitability or like your any stats to show the commercial viability of your business? And I ask this because it's really important for entrepreneurs to see that impact and commercial profits are entirely possible. Uh, so normally we only tell our shareholders this information because we're not public. Yes, but I think you do make a good point is that every time you have a business, not, not every idea is profitable and not every idea solves a problem. And I think that's, that's the key part of it. You know, what, so my advice to entrepreneurs or even to, you know, corporate um, VCs trying to look for the next big thing to transform their industry is to really be very focused and passionate about the problem you're solving, you know, and, and what kind of impact it will have on your industry. So not just as a product, because the product doesn't do anything, right, unless it's a, it solves the problem. Um, and also realize that, you know, the companies that embrace you know, all these emerging technologies are going to be the ones who will have unfair competitive advantages down the track. So those who don't embrace them, if you don't get on board, you get left behind. So so I think it's it's very important when you look at the the, the commerciality or the feasibility of it, always do your research. Don't just think that I've got a great idea and think that people are going to fund you for that. It's not going to happen. Um, but being able to show that, you know, the customer is willing to pay the price that you stated for. Yeah, absolutely. Like, couldn't have said it better myself. How much of your life have you created, curated, or chanced mm. upon? I always believe your destiny is in your own hands, right? So you create your own destiny. And um, don't blame it on your parents or your teachers or your boss, okay? Because they obviously, you know, they can be positive or negative influences to you, but you control what you think you can achieve. So your mindset is very important. And um, also, you know, as I said before, if you set your heart and mind to a goal, pursue it wholeheartedly. Sometimes you see a lot of entrepreneurs, they have all these brilliant ideas. They will go do one or because I feel I couldn't raise capital, they ditch it, try another one. And forever they are in this spiral of chasing around the next big idea. But if you are never persistent and you don't really know why you are doing it, you are just wasting time, effort and money. You know, so let your why drive what you do and don't let what you do define who you are. Oh, beautiful. Thank you so much, Esther. Really could have gone on talking to you. I think you're a treasure trove of wisdom, knowledge and a shining inspiration and example for all of us. Thank you for all you do, um, especially with Agilate, but thank you for breaking those glass ceilings for yeah, so many Thanks of a us. lot, Pretty. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to the Startup Power Show. If you had a blast listening to this episode, come on board and join our incredible cheer squad. Spread the startup love by sharing the episode with your friends, leave us a review, or drop us your valuable feedback, comments, or burning questions. Stay tuned for our next episode where we'll shine the spotlight on another startup superstar. I'm Preeti Mohan and I look forward to seeing you next time.